Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us in this worship service. I'm really excited to continue in our Lenten sermon series on the Psalms of this morning. It was kicked off on Wednesday, Wednesday by Edgar and the youth team who did such a wonderful Ash Wednesday service for us. I did want to just reinforce what was said there about Lent. This is a season of preparation for the church. We are choosing to read and pray through the Psalms every day until we get to Holy Week. Um, And the reason for that is that we want to prepare our hearts to truly remember what Jesus did through his death and resurrection. And so we take this time as Uh, was described in the Old Testament when the Israelites wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and then, as was described and Edgar uh, reminded us of on Wednesday of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, uh, this is a time where the church chooses to go a different way than a self-indulgent world to think upon how we might sacrifice Um, and choose an alternative path for the way that we live our lives in remembrance of how Jesus lived his life and invites us to do the same. I also just want to read to you um, on a reason for why we might choose the Psalms in this season. This is from a little devotional book by Thomas Merton called Praying Through the Psalms, and he writes these words. Does the church love the Psalms merely because they are ancient, vulnerable religious poems, merely out of conservative refusal to change? The church indeed likes what is old, not because it is old, rather, but because it is young. In the Psalms, we drink divine praise at its pure and stainless source, in all its primitive sincerity and perfection. We return to the youthful strength and directness with which the ancient psalmist voiced their adoration of the God of Israel. The Psalms truly are special, and our psalm this morning is no exception. I'm going to pray and then I will read Psalm 32. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us in the reading of your word. Holy Spirit, would you guide, instruct, convict, and move us into repentance and renewal as we come to confess this morning. We pray that you would Help us to search our hearts, to articulate our hearts to you and to each other, and to ultimately find the gladness of heart described by David in this psalm. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
When I keep silent, my bones wasted. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. A few notes about our psalm as we get going this morning. In most Bibles, this psalm is described as a maskil, which seems to mean something like a wisdom poem. We learn that through the root word, which is also used in verse 8 here, where it says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. And so a maskil is really an expression of earned, experienced wisdom. And we know that this is the earned, experienced wisdom of David. And David is described, most of us know, as a dominant figure scripturally in the Bible and even people outside of the church have an awareness of who David is and his story because he has left such an impression on history. But I wanted to read to you just a couple verses from the New Testament describing who Jesus is in context with who David is our psalmist for this morning. Matthew 1.1, the opening of the book of Matthew says this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. This is an intentional note by Matthew. These are the three towering figures that stand in the historical consciousness of Israel, and so Matthew is intentionally putting Jesus in the same lineage as David and Abraham. Abraham, the father of many nations, David, the first and most noble of kings, and Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew 12, 23 describes a time 
where the crowds had just witnessed a miracle and they're beginning to realize just who Jesus is. And they ask this question. All the crowds were amazed and they said, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? See, David was so important that when the crowd met Jesus and saw his miraculous healings and miracles, their question was, could this man possibly measure up to who David is? And then finally, in the book of Revelations, says this, and one of the elders in chapter 5, verse 5, said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seal. You see, even at the end, the conversation is about this Jesus who is in the lineage of David. So why really is David such a towering scriptural figure? Well, he's a man we know who stood on life's mountaintop. He tasted victory, empowerment, in a way that can only uniquely come from being the underdog of underdogs and vanquishing an insurmountable foe and continuously repeating this trajectory of impossible victory after impossible victory, inspiring many to come and follow him with no true credentials other than the proof that was in his relationship with God made manifest in his leadership. And so people were drawn to him. And yet he also knew what it meant to be brought lower than low. To have his face press against the dust to draw on a Lenten metaphor. He went from the sheep pen to the palace all the way back down to the dust. Now, we could probably think of many kings whose biographies may share some of these great victories in battle and achievements that David has scripturally, and we certainly can think of those who have shared in some of his shortcomings. But one of the things I believe that makes David stand out is that he is a king who could share the wisdom that he learned from his experiences. He is a rare kind of artist who could search his soul and share words that heal and guide and instruct. David is not just a warrior, he is also a poet. And he has these three transcendent qualities that really make him stand out. He had style, he was an artist, and he also was an original. So let's talk about his style. David was offered 
the great armor of his time in order to go and fight Goliath, this insurmountable giant foe. But we read, and Malcolm Gladwell, the author, helps us in his book, David and Goliath, to understand that when Jesus, I mean, when David doesn't choose conventional armor to go into battle that would have weighed him down, but chooses a sling to throw rocks, something that he used and uh, perfected, a weapon he used and perfected while he was tending his sheep, that this was actually an innovation in military warfare at that time. And so David was pioneering a new way to fight a battle, to fight against a large foe by using new, um, for this new form of weaponry where he could actually throw a hard rock at a fast speed in order to vanquish Goliath. This was a step forward in what was going on, a military advancement of his time. David wasn't just a great warrior, but he was also a unifier. He brought two tribes of Israel together so that they could fight as one against big foes. And that's what really rose him to prominence as a leader. He innovated and he unified. David did not follow the mold. There was no mold for him to follow. He was the second after Saul who had a miserable end to his time as king. And David was there to set the prototype for what a king of Israel would look like at its best. He was the definer of what a king of Israel should be. And he was an artist. Not something that we would necessarily put on the job description of a king. Not something we hear so frequently about even the leaders of our time that they would also not just be great leaders, but great articulators, great uh, artists, uh, creative people that dream up new ideas and express feelings that help us to be together. And the reason why this is so profound and David is so transcendent is not because he was seeking to be an original, to have a unique style and to be innovative. No, he was seeking to be honest before God. I love how C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever noticing it. As David sat down with pen and parchment and perhaps a harp to share some of his kingly wisdom with us in a moment of destitution, 
he writes this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Not exactly the opening to a song that would skyrocket on the Christian billboard charts these days. But this psalm is soulful. David makes mistakes. And he explores his soul and searches his heart with intention. And he articulates what is going on internally with him poetically. It has a resonance that goes beyond just what he's feeling and into us. Now, because we know the end of David's story, and I've just read how he ends in the historical consciousness of even the people in Jesus' time as they saw Jesus and wondered if he was like David. But if we were standing in the moment that Psalm 32 is in, we might wonder what was hanging in the balance. You see, David's reputation was no good when he wrote this psalm. Many scholars know that Psalm 51 was written after David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for what he did, um, his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. But also they think that Psalm 32, the one we just read, is a companion piece. The story of David and Bathsheba is about ultimately the abuse of power in the name of lust, which leads to murder, intrigue, and brokenness. So let's not airbrush it. At this point, David was a brave leader, all the things we just described, and he had victory after victory, and he started to believe his own propaganda. And ultimately, because he started to believe his own propaganda, he did what his critics predicted he would do. He began to take whatever he wanted. Look at the many words that David himself poetically uses to describe his own sin. He uses the word transgression, which really can be translated as rebellion, refusing to submit to rightful authority. See, God has ordained certain limits for human behaviors, for our good and for the good of society. And when we go against those limits, we transgress. We refuse to be subject to God's rightful authority in our lives. And then he doesn't just say transgressions, then he goes to sin. And we know sin means to miss the mark, that God has a desired mark for us, a way that we can live. And when we choose to sin, we miss all that God would have for us. We miss the mark. He also uses the word iniquity. And this is from a word meaning bent or twisted. It has the nuance of perverting that which is right, taking 
what is good and corrupting it, erring from the right and good path. Anytime you have done something crooked or wrong or manipulated something, that is how we would describe committing iniquity. You see, but because David is not only stylish, not only an artist, not only an original, but he also has rhythm to his art and originality. David confesses that he has spent some time wallowing in this psalm. Says that his wallowing, he, his blueness, his sadness felt like God was pressing down on him as he kept his sin, as he lived with his sin for many days, as he stood in his shame, in his hiding, what so many of us do when we fall short and make a mistake. But he doesn't just stop there. He has the long view to tell us about. He gets a rhythm eventually. As Johnny Cash once said, get a rhythm when you get the blues. When you are sad, when you've made a grand mistake, you can stay blue for a little while, but eventually you need to get moving out of that place. And so what David does is he searches what is paining him, what is holding him down, and he invites God into the conversation. And he says, if you want to deal with your sin, what you should do is not keep quiet, but to summon the courage to bring to speech the mistakes that you have made in your life. And if you're really struggling like David, perhaps you too could get out a pen and a piece of paper and take some intentional time to write out what it is that is holding you and pressing down on you, causing you guilt and shame, and just bring it forth in words through writing and commend it to God. And in so doing, David's wise words teach us that we will not stay in that emotional place of feeling pressed down, but that in fact once we confess our sin to God, that we are on a journey to joy and glad-heartedness. You see the words that he uses here to describe this feeling. The first we know very well. He says, forgiven. This is to bear, to carry off, or to take away a burden. This has a very deep meaning scripturally, And it comes from the Hebrew sacrificial system when the high priest would select a goat, lay hands on its head, and confess the sins of the people and thereby in ceremonial fashion putting their sins on the goat 
And the animal was then sent out into the wilderness as a picture of how God carried their sins away from himself. That's one of the words used here. The next is the word covered, which means that once David confesses his sins, he says that he's completely covered, out of sight. His sins are gone. As far as the east is from the west is how the New Testament describes this theme of being covered. The judgment of God no longer affects the sinner. They are protected. If we are in Christ, our sins are covered by his blood. And then he says it's not counted or imputed. There's no charge on his account. The things that he did wrong are no longer held against him. The verb used of God's dealings with Abraham when he said, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned or credited it to him as righteousness. As Paul argues, this is the righteousness which comes from faith alone, not from works. Martin Luther once said this. He said, sin has but two places where it may be. Either it may be with you or that it lies upon your neck or upon Christ, the Lamb of God. If now it lies upon your neck, you are lost. If, however, it lies upon Christ, you are free and will be saved. If your sin is upon Christ, you will enjoy enjoy the blessing of a clean conscience. This is what we strive after this Lenten season. This is what the psalmist helps us to prepare to do, is to journey to Easter in a way where we can say, Blessed am I, and sing the songs of a glad heart, because our transgressions are not held against us. And in so doing, we are prepared to be with our God and to know him in all fullness and gladness of heart. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, Be with us as we journey through the Psalms over these next weeks. Help us to learn from them. Help us to be your church in the midst of them. Encourage us, inspire us. Help us to see the ways in which we too can relate in our humanness to the mistakes that are made, to the questions that are asked, and ultimately to the God that is found in their midst. We thank you for this sacred, beautiful journey we get to go on this Lent. Give us strength and help us to walk this new path together. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.